Hi, and welcome to New Mexico in Focus, the podcast for Tuesday, September 6th, 2022. I'm your host, Lou DeVizio. If you had a long weekend for Labor Day, I hope you got out and enjoyed it, even in the heat. But I know from experience that Labor Day isn't a guaranteed day off for a lot of people. So if you did have to work, I sincerely hope you get an extra day off soon. Now, it may be a short week for us here at New Mexico in Focus, but we do have a lot for you. Later today, Our Land's Laura Paskus is sitting down with Governor Michelle Lujan Grisham to talk about some of the pressing environmental concerns facing our state. We'll get that interview to you as soon as we can. We're also getting a different perspective on the debate over homeless encampments in the city of Albuquerque. Gene Grant spoke with the New Mexico Harm Reduction Collaborative about the work they're doing, and they also gave us some insight on how unhoused people see this situation. So we'll have that full interview right here on the podcast later this week. You can also watch it Friday night at 7 o'clock on our broadcast. But for now, let's get to the headlines impacting New Mexicans. New assessments show that most New Mexico students are not proficient when it comes to math, science, or language arts. Public Education Secretary Kurt Steinhaus released the results of last spring's statewide assessments to reporters late last week. The results showed only one in four students tested were proficient or better in math, and about a third were proficient or better in science and reading and writing. For those in kindergarten to second grade, almost 70% fell short of the proficiency mark in early literacy. The state's education department says it's using a new tool to measure progress, stressing that results can't be compared to previous years. But that said, during that press conference, they did acknowledge that the state has a history of low student achievement. They point to the pandemic as one of the reasons that those challenges have continued. A new investigation from the Associated Press is exposing how little states like New Mexico use red flag laws to take guns out of the hands of people who could be a danger to themselves or others. Since 2020, more than 600 people have died from gun violence in New Mexico. But our state's red flag law has only been used eight times in that time period. For those who don't know, red flag laws allow police officers who think a gun owner is in imminent danger to themselves or somebody else to petition a judge to order that person to surrender their firearms. Those firearms could also be seized for what's referred to as an emergency period, typically two weeks. After that, the judge can then convene a hearing where petitioners present evidence to keep those weapons longer, and of course the owner can argue against it. Many police believe that seizing guns can also be dangerous and unnecessary. That includes Tony Mace, he's the head of the New Mexico Sheriff's Association, which lobbied against the state's law. New Mexico's judiciary is recommending getting rid of court fees for traffic violations and some misdemeanor criminal cases. They say that they can have a disproportionate effect on the poor. The new proposal would not affect court fines applied by judges as punishment, and municipal courts could continue to collect fees when enforcing local ordinances. A division director for the administrative office of the courts told a panel of legislators that if the fees were waived, the state would have to replace that revenue with taxpayer dollars from the state general fund. The legislature is expected to consider the proposals when it meets in January 2023. The New Mexico Supreme Court has ruled that people have the constitutional right to walk and wade on stream beds of rivers flowing over private lands. This is all tied to the case of Adobe Whitewater Club versus the State Game Commission. The court found that the Game Commission's regulations are an unconstitutional infringement on the public's right to use public water. That's a quote. And they said that the Game Commission lacked the authority to create those rules. 
Laura Paskus and Our Land have been following this battle over access to public waters closely. You can watch Laura's interview with former game commissioner Jeremy Vesbach online right now on the Our Land YouTube page. Democrats are leading in several key state races, according to polling from the Albuquerque Journal. Last week on the podcast, I told you about the double-digit leads in four state offices. This week, Gene sits down with our line opinion panelists to understand why those leads are so big and if they might shrink before Election Day. They'll also get into the governor's race, which is much closer. Our panelists this week are former New Mexico State Senator Dee Dee Feldman, CEO of Girl Scouts of New Mexico, Rebecca Latham, and investigative and enterprise reporter at the Las Cruces Sun News, Algernon Damasa. We're going to start it off in the political arena after new polling in the Albuquerque Journal. That poll shows double-digit leads for Democrats in four key state offices, Attorney General, Secretary of State, Treasurer, and Commissioner of Public Lands. We'll get to the governor's race in a moment, where Michelle Lujan Grisham has a seven-point lead, but starting broadly, Senator Feldman, were you at all surprised to see such big leads for Democrats across the board in New Mexico? I was not surprised for those statewide offices, mm -hmm. uh, other than governor, to see at least a 10-point lead. Um, I think that's reflected in uh, registration data. And um, I think also for some of those offices, the the voters revert to their political party mm. um, and not so much um, the personalities, with the exception of the attorney general. Right. And crime is on everybody's minds. And uh, I think that explains um, Raul Torres's uh, good standing, uh, along with the fact that he had a rigorous primary mm -hmm. in which he advertised statewide. Right and uh, became well known for that reason. But no, that, that did not surprise me. Um, these folks, uh, Secretary of State uh, and the Land Commissioner in particular are incumbents and they've been in the news. They are known to uh, people in New Mexico whereas their opponents are not. Mm -hmm. uh, Rebecca, interestingly, um, that treasurer's race kind of catches my eye there. Oh, actually, let me start with this, let me back up. The race for AG that was just mentioned, GOP candidate Jeremy Gay doesn't have the same name recognition as Raul Torres, uh, certainly as Senator just mentioned, but for those who are familiar with him, many are pretty enthusiastic about him. Do you think this race will get any tighter by any chance? I mean, I think there's there's always a possibility. There's still, you know, between now and November, there's still a lot of time left where we can right. see some shifts. What I think was interesting to me was how many Republicans uh, said that they would vote for the Democratic candidate versus how few Democratic uh, um, voters said that they would vote for the Republican candidate and state treasurer. Mm -hmm. um, but, uh, Senator Feldman, I, I, echo everything that she says about, you know, it's so hard in these statewide races when no one knows who you are and you're not pulling the campaign, the campaign support to really establish, uh, establish your name. Mm -hmm. Algernon, interestingly, Governor, let's get to the governor. Uh, her lead is a bit wider than the last way, you know, to early polling. Do you expect that gap, you know, the personal opinion I'm asking here, certainly, but in your professional opinion, is that gap poised to get even wider, or can Mr. Ron Ketty make a, a push late here? And if he can, what would be, what could he ride in on, so to speak? 
I would expect it to tighten, although mm -hmm. you're right that the most recent polling suggests that the governor is widening what was a pretty slim lead for a while. The governor has emerged from the pandemic and consequent challenges, as well as some other issues politically that um, beat down her approval ratings considerably. But now there's a choice to make, and we're learning much more about uh, the positions that Mark Ronchetti offers in the alternative. Mm -hmm. And uh, interestingly, what one thing that has been a lot of eyes have been on how the overturning of Roe v. Wade this summer would affect the contest. And I think one indication of whether that's going to have an effect in New Mexico, which acted preemptively to protect abortion rights uh, in the state in anticipation of this very event, mm -hmm. one thing to look at is a new registration of voters and how many women were registering to vote in states like Kansas, there was a pretty sizable um, uh, increase in the number of women as a percentage of new voter registrations. In New Mexico, it has stayed largely the same. Mm -hmm. um, however, I, I think perhaps, especially with the announcement um, on August 31st about the governor's plans to uh, fund a, a new full spectrum reproductive health clinic in southern New Mexico in, in, in Doña Ana County. Mm -hmm. uh, I think perhaps that's going to become an issue debated and we'll see if it moves the numbers for either candidate in either direction. Senator, I'm glad Algernon brought that up. I'm very, very glad. Interesting. It says to me the governor is feeling pretty safe in her position of where we're going here. And maybe perhaps to add to that in the polling we're referencing here, 50% uh, of women support Governor Michelle Lujan Grisham to 32% for Mark Ronchetti. That's a pretty big gap. Does Mr. Ronchetti, is there anything Mark Ronchetti can do at this point to get out from under this abortion issue and increase his numbers with women here? Well, it's no, it's no surprise and it's not a coincidence that uh, the governor used her power to announce a uh, abortion clinic mm -hmm. uh, to be located in southern New Mexico, where uh, the polling data shows that support for uh, abortion is even stronger than in Albuquerque, right. which which was a surprise to me mm -hmm. um, in in that recent polling by Sandroff. But um, I think the problem that Ron Ketty is having is that. Um, he, he made a statement to um, Steve Smotherton, the, the controversial uh, pastor of Legacy Church, that yes, he was opposed to all abortion, but for politics sake, for to be realistic, he was uh, going to take a more moderate approach of opposing abortion, but accepting the uh, when there was a threat to the, the life of the mother or uh, in cases of uh, rape and incest. So that brings that, that, that puts him kind of on the hot seat there because of that inconsistency. Mm -hmm. And I think, you know, the polling data shows how strong um, uh, Michelle Lujan Grisham is amongst women and amongst Hispanics. Yes. And yep. that's the base that uh, Ronchetti has to crack into mm -hmm. uh, in order to move his numbers. Mm -hmm. And by the way, there is another poll out too that shows that the governor's lead is not as substantial as the one uh, in the Albuquerque Journal. Mm -hmm. um, that's the Greenberg-Quinlan poll 
which puts uh, Luhan Grisham at 48% and Ronchetti at 44%. So that's a 4% uh, difference. Inside. And that's surmountable. That's right. That's a good point there. I appreciate your last point there. Rebecca, I got to get you in on this one. The, the journal poll, of course, covered abortion as well, which I thought was actually kind of brilliant. Only 12% of New Mexicans support outlawing abortion across the board. So I ask again that, you know, Mr. Ron Ketty has really got himself in a corner painted by, you know, <laughs> somebody else, but it, it, he's in it nonetheless. Can he actually back away from this and really get some credible traction at this point? So I, I think he has. I think he has no choice. And I, I do want to point out that um, that he that his campaign, he and his campaign have denied making that even having that conversation. Oh, wow. With that pastor, Steve Smotherman. Okay. So and, and I think Mark uh, has been very transparent um, for those who are listening about like, yes, he does have a personal opinion about uh, about abortion rights, but he also um, recognizes that that's not necessarily what New Mexicans want. Um, in that journal poll where only 12% said that abortion should be illegal all the time, it said 35% said that it should be legal all the time. The, the sweet spot there is that combined so mm -hmm. 20 22 percent say it should be legal with limitations and 25 percent say it should be illegal with limitations which means 47 percent of the people polled have some sort of common ground right on the it's either it's legal with limits or it's illegal with limits but it's like that the, there's some sort of a compromise mm -hmm. and so so i think ronchetti is going to have to tap into that perhaps the other thing i think is really interesting in this poll overall is while you know 47% say they want to vote for uh, Governor Lujan Grisham and 40% say Ronchetti, the fact that 13% of voters have no confidence in either, 5% mm -hmm. of them are so, they're so unhappy with the choices that they're willing to vote for someone who literally cannot win. And then 13% saying that they, they, they're unhappy with either choice. So they're just gonna wait until the last minute to figure out who they're voting against. They're right. not voting for either candidate, they're gonna vote against. And so it's gonna be up to these two front runners to really establish the difference between themselves and, and the lesser of the two evils. That's a good point there. I, Rebecca, let me stay with you with this one thing here. If he got an, he being Mr. Ronchetti, if an endorsement came in from President Trump, would that be impactful for him? Would that put a little wind in his sails at this point? Uh, at this point, I, I mean, frankly, no. Right. <laughs> I, I don't. I don't think so. But I also don't think that he um, he is seeking any sort of endorsement. We saw in the primary that the Trump Republican lost horribly. Mm -hmm. um, we see this more and more, I think, in some of the statewide races we were talking about. You've got some, you have Trump Republicans that are running for office and, and it's it's really hurting them. Mm -hmm. So we're see it working in everywhere else in the country, just like we know in New Mexico, doesn't mean it's going to work here. And I, so I don't think that that would really be something that, that the Ronchetti campaign would be seeking. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I appreciate your points there. Thank you to the other two for letting me kind of stretch out there with uh, Rebecca a little bit. They're very interesting points. Thank you for that analysis. We're already zeroing in on November, so stay with us for continued election coverage on candidates and the issues in the coming months. Last week on the podcast, I told you about the progress in Las Vegas, New Mexico, where people are in danger of losing their clean drinking water. Ash and debris from the Hermit's Peak Calf Canyon fire have contaminated much of that supply 
but the installation of a new temporary treatment system is on track. It's just a matter of getting it finished and testing the water from it before the clean water supply runs out. Gene and the panel talk through this problem as we try to get a handle on the lingering impacts of this year's historic wildfire season. The largest wildfire in state history is now 100% contained. The Hermit's Peak Calf Canyon fire is finally under control, but some lingering impacts are creating another disaster in northern New Mexico. Heavy rains are rushing through the burn scar, bringing ash and debris with them. That ash and debris has contaminated drinking water in Las Vegas, New Mexico. Now, thankfully, this week, a new piece of equipment did arrive there to help restore the city's treatment system. But, of course, this is all a consequence of U.S. Forest Service action that started the Hermit's Peak Calf Canyon fire in the first place. Senator Feldman, we start here. Should the federal government be held responsible? I know they want to recede, but our governor Lujan's a uh, governor. Our our senator Lujan's looking for a little bit more. Are you looking for more from the feds as well? Yes. Mm -hmm. Yes, they need to pay the total bill. Oh wow! And yeah. you know, for for everything. Um, and um, I'm worried about whether they're going to do that, mm -hmm. uh, particularly as time goes by. And we might see a change in leadership in the U.S. House, um, and uh, that that might make it less urgent as well. Mm -hmm. uh, so they need to, yeah, they need to make Las Las Vegas whole um, in terms of drinking water, in right. particular. That's right. Um, Alan Janon, an interesting point the senator made that the entire federal response, as you know and everybody knows, runs through FEMA. Uh, which the center said was not necessarily set up to deal with disasters like this one. That's an interesting point there. I, I'm curious your thoughts on that. No, I think that that really kind of reflects our shift in thinking about the climatic conditions. And I think the mm -hmm. challenge we have in connecting these conditions to the broader context of climate change. I mean, obviously there's blame to be cast on government agencies for uh, the uh, the catastrophe in New Mexico mm -hmm. this summer, but uh, you know the, the 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 context, the accelerator, to use a bad metaphor, is uh, is our worsening drought conditions, our lengthening and intensifying heat waves. Um, these are the things that are driving down our fuel moisture and turning much of New Mexico into a tinderbox. Mm -hmm. And so, no, FEMA was not uh, once upon a time set up like a lot of federal agencies, the agencies to whom it falls to help with some of the mitigation of the damage to help make ranchers whole in Catron County and Grant County, where we uh where you know where we're recovering from the black fire this summer the All state's right. second largest wildfire in history um a lot of these agencies to whom that that mitigation falls are just not funded for all of the need and this is just in new mexico we're not the only state that saw fires and mm -hmm. so uh fema's not prepared and and really uh federal agencies across the board are not prepared but um hello right uh this is this is where we are Rebecca, interestingly, when it comes to the water situation in Vegas that we opened the segment with, uh, infrastructure is at the root of the problem. We, we expected flooding. People expected flooding. Did, could we have done more to get in front of this? Uh, I, I mean, flooding's happened in a lot of places for a lot of years. It's not as if this is the first one. Yeah, um, I think going back centuries ago, we could have done more to prevent the flooding and everything that's happening now. I mean, there's just so much evidence of, uh, of how government inaction has played um, time and time again, played a major role in um, 
in not having the healthiest possible forests and um, allowing overgrazing, allowing um, uh, logging on such a major scale. I mean, it is, it's incredibly important that we thin forests. I mean, we at Girl Scouts own two huge camp properties, mm. one in the one in the Jemez Mountains, one in the Sangre de Cristo Mountains. And um, we work with our federal partners on, on funding some thinning projects. It's so, it's, it's so good, it's healthy, it's wonderful. I don't know why it's not happening more mm -hmm. because we know that those thinning projects are, um, are critical to healthy forests. Um, so I, I think the, the, the other, I think real big tragedy again with government in action, we were able with the pandemic, uh, pandemic there were, there were um, economists who were able to say early on in the pandemic, in two or three years, we're going to be experiencing inflation and a recession. And like they, they could predict that all right. of these things were gonna happen, right? right. So why weren't we able to, pre to predict that, that New Mexico's, um, uh, our, our cultural heritage uh, that has led us to so many New Mexicans um, owning property that, that they didn't have adequately insured or sharing property or um, not having the resources or the, the paperwork or whatever they need in order to receive federal funding. Like that's right. it, like insult to injury. Why didn't we know if a fire hits this area, these are all the things that are going to go wrong and then get ahead of it there too. That's right, that's right, good point there. Senator, uh, Rebecca's reminding me of the situation that folks who family land grant holders here in New Mexico find themselves in now in a real sort of a vice. Uh, you know, the system set up for, you know, making whole single family homeowners, business owners. You know, there's a big crack that land grant people have fallen into here. Is this an opportunity to, to get a little more clarity on how our relationship between the federal government, state government, and land grant owners should, we can, we can take this and tighten this up a little bit, it seems to me. What's your thought on that? Well, certainly um, uh, land grants, New Mexico, Ezequias, are very severely impacted by this fire and now by flooding. Mm -hmm. And um, I heard an interview recently with somebody uh, up there, uh, I think near Rosiada, which has really been impacted by the um, by the floods. Uh, and they basically said they had received a, a grant from FEMA and all it allowed them to do was to clear the land. There was no question of rebuilding. It was just to clear the debris away. And that was their allotment. Wow. Uh, and so, you know, faced with that, I think you know, there are a lot, there's a lot of psychological damage to a way of life up there in northern New Mexico. Yep. Yep. And um, it's going to take a long time to recover from that, as well as, you know, maybe building some small check dams so that with our own capital outlay funds, so this kind of flooding can't happen again. Mm -hmm. But um, I one thing I noticed, uh, a hopeful thing, is that the... Um, New Mexico uh, Human Services Department recognizes this, and they're now offering free counseling uh, for people in uh, in the affected areas. And I hope people will take uh, take advantage of that. It's available through the Human Services website. Mm -hmm. That's a, I'm glad you mentioned that. I mean, the emotional response of losing everything you've had in your family for generations. I mean, come on now. Uh, Algernon, we've all seen the situation developing in Jackson, Mississippi where flooding caused the water pumps to fail and hundreds of thousands in the city are without running water. 
You know, it seems to be a national problem, but was the last infrastructure deal enough to address? Or do we need to take a harder look specifically at drinking water in the, inf in the infrastructure around it? There's a lot of unknowns. Yeah. And <clears throat> what infrastructure we'll need, <clears throat> in part, it also depends on sources. And right. where we're going to be deriving our water sources is in the process of change. Uh, some of this is in the courts. Arizona and Nevada are looking at having to uh, change their expectations of what they can expect uh, from the river. There's a, a, a settlement being negotiated in federal court now involving the Rio Grande and mm -hmm. Texas and a, a long running dispute between um, Texas and New Mexico with Colorado also involved. Um, the Colorado River is changing. Albuquerque has had to stop deriving, you know, tapping into the Rio Grande for some of the water that it depends on. Mm -hmm. um, I live in Luna County and where we had a debate um, for a few years recently about a possible diversion of the Gila River. And what that debate really laid bare is that in 30 to 40 years, it's not clear what Luna County will be using to irrigate crops or even using for municipal use. Wow. And so part of it is just, there's a lot we don't know yet about sources and what's going to become of agriculture. Yeah. And that's not just about water sources, it's also about the heat waves that have already been mentioned on this program. Um, when we're looking at, for instance, projected temperatures in America's breadbasket, the Central Valley of California, exceeding 104 degrees for periods of time, 104 degrees is the process where photosynthesis can no longer That's take right. place. That's right. The enzymes break down and they cannot move the way they need to for photosynthesis. Yeah. How is that going to affect crops? Um, and so what we'll need, what we'll have to irrigate, much less what we'll have to irrigate with in the American West is going to be changing a lot. So how do you plan for infrastructure in an right. orderly manner 10, 20, 50 years into the future? That's you don't right. really That's a good point there. We're going to have to think way out there now as opposed to the next five or 10 years. Thanks again to our line panel. Thanks again to Gene and the panel. The group also talked through the state's recent rollout of fentanyl test strips to help prevent overdoses. That conversation is online right now on our New Mexico in Focus YouTube channel. Now this next interview I've been particularly excited about. It's a segment with author and filmmaker Ramona Emerson. New Mexico and Focus correspondent Antonia Gonzalez sat down with Emerson to talk about her new book, Shudder. Now you may be familiar with Miss Emerson's documentary film work. It's extensive and does a fantastic job highlighting and communicating indigenous perspectives. In her debut novel, she does it again, just with a lot more suspense and excitement. Here's Antonia's full interview with author Ramona Emerson. Ramona, welcome to New Mexico in Focus. Thank you, Antonia. It's good to be here. Thanks for having me. Well, you're already well known for your filmmaking. <laughs> now here we have an acclaimed debut novel, Shudder, different form of storytelling for you. How did this book come about? Well, <laughs> I don't even, I couldn't, five years ago, I would have told you, I don't know, even know if I could make it happen. I've never thought of myself as a fiction writer. Uh, I mean, even the beginning of that particular book started out as a documentary idea. I thought maybe I would like to do a documentary about Navajos who deal with death in their jobs. People like police officers, doctors, pathologists, scientists. 
and you know talk about what is ingrained, what it, how is death so um, foreboding for Navajo people and why do we have our beliefs and so I started doing research on that but in the process of doing that I realized that um, I don't know if it would make a great documentary not a lot of people wanted to talk to me about that you know so um, it kind of put a squash on that but at the same time I started to think about my own life working as a forensic videographer here in Albuquerque and how that would make an interesting story um, so I kind of did an introspective and started to think, well, maybe other people don't want to talk about it, but I can talk about it. I dealt with it for 16 years, um, and then it started. And I was in a workshop up in Los Luceros at the time. So that, me quitting my job as a forensic videographer, and then also taking these classes at the same time, I think kind of melded in the early short stories that I would write about my grandmother and these kind of short ghost stories I started to write as part of my workshop kind of melded together and it started to turn into this. But once I went to APD's forensic, civilian forensic academy here in Albuquerque, I think it really cemented it for me. And I was already at school at IAIA um, getting my MFA. Um, the mentor I had up at Los Luceros basically told me that she didn't think I should go into screenwriting. She thought I should go into fiction because of the way I write. If it wasn't for her saying that to me, I probably wouldn't even have thought about writing this story into a, a book. It would have probably been a, another screenplay that never got produced. Um, so I'm glad she sent me in that direction because after two years in my MFA program, I was able to turn all those short stories into that and at least the early draft. Um, so. It was a very long 10 years of writing in between film projects and in between parenting and all the craziness of life. Um, so it took me 10 years to finish it, um, but I, I'm really happy with where it ended up and um, I'm glad that I decided to go this direction. It's so much less stressful than filmmak filmmaking and it's, you know, you don't have to worry about the budget when you're writing fiction like you do when you're writing screenplays. I think that was a big hindrance for me. I'd always be thinking, oh, you can't afford this, <laughs> you know, when I'm trying to write um, a story in a screenplay format. So when I wrote this, it was like I didn't have to worry about that. I was, you're free to tell whatever story you want and include whatever facts or whatever um, stories you want to make up into it, and, and it comes to fruition. So. Uh, it took me a while, and I think that writing is still one of my least favorite activities. <laughs> I'll admit, I'm not, I don't like writing. I might be good at it, but I don't like to do it. Um, so I'm just, you know, I'm just glad it, it actually came to fruition, and I'm starting to like writing um, a little bit more than filmmaking now. <laughs> And so how much of what's in here is based on your own life, your own experiences? Um, you are a photographer, you mentioned taking some of these classes and your work uh, prior to your filmmaking. So how much of your life, I mean, you're from the Navajo Nation. Uh, <laughs> I really connected with the grandmother in the story. I mean, I was really close with my Navajo grandmother. Mm -hmm. um, so how much of it are people going to find that you put in with your own life experiences? Well, I think almost all of the stuff with the grandma um, and the character um, comes from things that my grandma and myself did. I mean, I grew up with my grandma a good portion of my childhood, and you know, those are real things that we experienced and things that she would talk to me about. And um, 
you know, I, I think pretty much all of that is, is part of me. Um, I may have embellished here and there, but um, those are my memories. And um, growing up in Tohatchi, I really wanted to make Tohatchi a character of the book um, because that's my hometown, and you know, and, and it's really important for me to uh, showcase it and, and um, you know, talk about it the way I always remember it. Um, the, the current stuff with the forensics, um, a lot of it is based on real cases that I learned about as part of my forensic um, training with APD. Um, you know, I, I, changed, I changed facts, and, but, but the basic root of some of these crimes and some of these incidents that take place in Albuquerque are real. And some of it's taken from my own experiences working with, as a forensic videographer. Um, and just thinking about how my work impacted like my emotions and how um, I would think about people who I filmed for legal reasons um, for years, for months. I mean, their, their stories and their lives would impact me deeply. And I kind of used those emotions and gave them to Rita um, in a different way. Of course, I, don't see, I didn't see ghosts and I didn't communicate with ghosts while I was working forensics. That would have probably made it a little easier. Um, but um, I was able to use my emotions that I had working those cases and give them to Rita as kind of a, a supernatural um, power instead. Because they evoke the same emotions in her um, and she would think about their families and who they left behind. And that's what motivates you to do that kind of work. Even if it's something that is so taboo in your own culture and something that you grew up having a deep fear of, when you work in that kind of, that kind of uh, industry, you realize pretty quick that you're there to bring justice. You're there uh, to speak for the people who can't speak for themselves. Um, and it turns, it turns into a different vocation then. It turns into a different thing. You're not just taking photographs and um, you're affecting people's lives. And so it's very important, yeah. So in that same way that Rita does. And to add to that, it is, you know, a crime and supernatural aspects of this book. And we know there are a lot of taboos out there yeah. in tribes across the country, just not Navajo Nation, but a lot of tribes. So how did you approach that? Are you worried or were you worried about any backlash or any criticism? I am worried. <laughs> um, you know, the book comes out tomorrow. And I have to say, when I was in the process of writing it, I, I would often say, oh, geez, <laughs> are you going to write that? Are you going to put that in? What would your grandma say? You know, I mean, I, I had those internal di dialogues with myself. Um, how are Navajos going to take this story? Um, and I, I realized that, I, well, I did a lot of uh, research about death and about how Navajos came to this um, pinnacle of being so afraid of death that you don't even talk about it. It's not something that's even supposed to be a part of your life. And I began to realize that looking at other cultures and looking at other um, rituals around the world um, and doing deep research about all these different, how different people believe and how different people think about it, I find, kind of felt that the, the Diné are real um, anchored to the Spanish flu. And I think the Spanish flu epidemic really had a huge impact on how Navajos feel about death and their fear of it. Um, because before that, the research really doesn't show that. It's like they're moving on to the next world. It's a rebirth. And then at some point, it turns into this evil monster. And for me, I felt like this is a good time to have these discussions 
instead of hiding from them, we need to face them. And I think that a lot of people, like the, the Navajo Nation Human Rights Commission, are even starting to talk about traditional funeral practices and about how we deal with death. And so I think even in mainstream academia, we're starting to really think about that and, and wonder if um, there's a different way to approach things. And so I thought that it would be a good opening for dialogue. But at the same time, I also thought, well, you know, for the last, for decades, um, Dene have been reading Tony Hillerman and he talks all kinds of spooky stuff that I would never put in a book, never. Um, and they read those books. So reading something like this that I know I didn't put any sensitive knowledge in because I know better that they should be fine reading this book. And if we want to have a discussion about death and we want to talk about those taboos, now's the time to do it. And it's time to face it instead of running away from it. Um, so I think it, it opens us up for some healthy discussions, both about that and about who we let tell our stories. Um, so I look forward to having this dialogue um, with who's, whoever is ready to have it. You know? And that's definitely my next question is, <laughs> move over Tony Hillman. <laughs> but really, as an indigenous person sharing indigenous stories um, through whatever, if it's through a book, through its, through its filmmaking, we know there are not a lot of non-native writers out there who mm -hmm. are writing about the Navajo Nation, who are yeah. writing about other tribes across the country. So what does it mean for you as an indigenous person, as a woman, to be sharing and telling a story through this book, um, something that we understand and we know, you know, what the do's and don'ts of? Well, I think it's really, I think it really illustrates the importance of having somebody from a community represent that community and tell that story. Um, because not only do you get falsehoods in, in stories written about people or written about us from people outside of our communities, I think there's a lot of falsehoods. I think there's a lot of chance for, um, you know, romanticizing our, our way of life. Um, there's a lot of time, uh, a lot of chance to stereotype us. And that continues to happen, and, and it always boggles the mind to me. I n never tell stories outside of my community because, I mean, even if I was going to tell a story about a Pueblo community, I make sure that they have exhausted every res resource to find somebody from their own community to do that. And if um, they don't find somebody, at least we can include some young people as part of the project. So they're in development. There will be somebody who can take over these stories after you know I'm gone. Um, but that's really important to me. Even through my film work, it's always been a real um, thorn to me to find people who continue to make these stories and continue to get funded to tell our stories when our own indigenous filmmakers are struggling um, to make ends meet, are struggling to have their projects financed. So for me, it's a big stick. <laughs> so writing a book like this, I think really shows that deep understanding of cultural taboo, the deep understanding of what stories you tell, what stories you have the right to tell, what stories that you should be telling. There are some stories that you should not be telling, and a lot of those people who don't come from our communities are telling that stories when they shouldn't. And, you know, I can't stop that from happening. People are going to do what they do. Um, but the trick is to have these discussions so that people understand why it's wrong. People understand why you don't tell that story out of respect, out of traditional belief. You don't tell that story or you only tell that story uh, during a certain part of the year. 
You know, people don't understand that because they don't come from our communities. So it's really important to educate these people that are trying to, you know, make these films or, or write these books. And if you're living in a tribal community like in a Pueblo or you're living um, on the Navajo Nation and people who are not Navajo or who don't come from your Pueblo community are approaching you about filming you, about interviewing you, about taking your own knowledge, your traditional knowledge and putting it in their book, really think about that. Really think about who this person is and where they come from, what their intentions are, and if you should share. Because a lot of times they'll take advantage and they'll tell, they'll tell the outside world about things we never intended to let them know about. So it's really, it's, it's really important to think about that, both as a writer and as somebody who is part of a community and is approached by somebody from outside. You know, I think a lot of times people are just eager to have their stories told. And so when somebody comes and they have a microphone and a camera, they're finally excited to tell their story and they'll let anybody tell their story and then that person will take it and turn it into something they never intended so watch out <laughs> that's all I have to say about that well yeah. and you talked a little bit about um, helping the next generation with your filmmaking um, and definitely our young people and tribal communities here in New Mexico and across the country they're already storytellers every oh, yeah. you know every young person I know has some kind of smart device and they're right sharing stories already so if you know what can pique the interest of some native youth who maybe are want to become a writer or maybe they mm -hmm. want to become a filmmaker what do you what's your advice to them well i think my biggest advice is not to give up um, i've been in the film industry for over 25 years and I'm always like, nobody's really seen my films. I think it, a lot of people in New Mexico have because uh, we have a great support for our local film industry. So people know who I am locally in New Mexico. But outside of that, not a lot of people have seen our films or have seen the work that my husband and I do. And we, we work really hard. Um, and we try to get our content out there and we work on projects constantly. And it's not always, you're not gonna hit Hollywood like right away. <laughs> I think that's something that I even believed in when I was first starting out. Like, all it takes is one good story and you could, you know, Quentin Tarantino it into Hollywood. That's not how it works. <laughs> um, and so the best thing about being a filmmaker, or the most important thing, I think, about being a filmmaker is you have the power to uh, document history, to document language, to document, document tradition. And I think that's something that a lot of tribes, even like the Navajo people or the Pueblos, don't really have a, a fondness for being photographed and for uh, being recorded. But intertribally, within your Pueblo, I think it's really important to create media, to create language libraries, uh, to create audio and video libraries, where we start to film our elders. We start to preserve our beliefs, our customs, our languages and use them internally. That information doesn't have to leave the Navajo Nation Museum. It doesn't have to leave local Pueblo libraries or um, local Pueblo governments, but it can affect generations for years to come because they'll have documented resources from tribal elders. That is the most important thing about being a filmmaker is documenting that history and documenting the extraordinary people that come in and out of our lives in these tribal um, communities. For me, 
it was documenting my mom making this giant painting or documenting uh, the, my neighbor who used to sheep herd for 50 some years and was stopping because she was just too tired of walking her sheep up the mountains every year. You know, that kind of stuff is what is so important about telling our stories. Because if we don't tell them, even if they, even if nobody ever sees them or they don't make some huge, um, you know, impact, like they don't get into Sundance or they don't get into Tribeca, forget that. Forget that. That's not why you're making these films. You're making these films for your community. If somebody puts their smart cap on and decides to put you into a film festival, good for them. But you didn't make that film for these people. You made that film for your community, you know. And that's what's important when you're a young up-and-coming filmmaker and you want to make an impact. That's your impact, you know. That's your impact. So I think it's really important for them to know that, you know. It's not important whether you get into Sundance or you do any of that other stuff. That's not important. It's important that you've preserved something and made something for your community. They'll always remember. And like you said, it took 10 years or more. <laughs> well, congratulations. Yes. And Thank you, anything, Antonia. Uh, <laughs> any kind of preview you can give us for what's next? Are we going to see a whole bookshelf of you know, well, Rita I, and her adventures? <laughs> I have promised at least a trilogy because I feel like I don't know if I could write that character beyond three books. So I did promise a trilogy, and I'm in the process of writing the second book right now. Um, we got a first draft, is due in December. <laughs> so oh, keep your fingers crossed. Um, but the second book is gonna be called Exposure. And uh, it's gonna continue to follow Rita into her life post-APD. <laughs> so well, We look forward to that, and thank you so much for your time here on New Mexico PBS. Thanks so much, Antonio. It was good, it was fun. <laughs>